Well, there's no need for a sermon after that singing. And yet, here we are. What a wonderful way to begin our time together. Before we jump into our text, I want to draw attention to the updated missions booklet. These are available out on the welcome counter, and the missions team has updated some prayer requests, some photos, information about the missionaries that we support, and so I encourage you, grab one of those booklets, make it a regular part of your prayer routine as we lift up those who are taking the gospel to contexts that we don't have access to, but they do by the grace of God. Therefore, we want to support them, which we do as a church, but also by praying for them, remembering them, lifting them to the Lord often. So those have been made available. Thanks to the missions team for putting that together. It's a great resource for us, so please take one of those if you don't have one already on your way out. Well, last Sunday, we looked at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and I focused most of my attention on what I think is the primary purpose of that section, which was to show the perfect obedience of Jesus over against or contrasted with the disobedience of basically everyone who had come before him. And in our context, specifically with the 40 days and with the wilderness, we were supposed to see that Jesus obeys where Israel doesn't. And that's the point of connecting this temptation to some of these specific details in the wilderness wandering of the people of God. And so, not only did we see that it was kind of a one-to-one obedience that Israel was in a place and they disobeyed. Jesus is in the same place, but he obeys. But his temptation was greater. His circumstance was worse. And yet, as the faithful son of God, Jesus obeys where no one else could. And so I tried to demonstrate that not only is it important that we see Jesus demonstrate obedience here in the temptation, but then as he goes throughout his whole life, And his whole ministry, everything he does is serving to fulfill all righteousness. And so as he heals the sick, as he walks in humility, as he obeys the Father, as he goes to the cross, all of those things are acts of obedience, which then gets transferred or given to us when we put our faith and trust in him. So this is not a throwaway passage. The obedience of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of his ministry as he comes and does what nobody else can do. Now I want to just say a word of comment. This is kind of the same thing, word, comment. You get my point. Before we jump in today, so we're going to see today, we're going to look at the same text. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. But rather than focusing on the obedience aspect, which I think is primary, We're going to look today how Jesus uses scripture to combat the temptation of the devil. How he gives us an example to follow by using the word of God. But I want to make this clear. That when Jesus sets an example for us, when he does things that we are supposed to imitate, we imitate his obedience but it is with very different effect. What I mean is that as I am going to commend to you using the scriptures in a certain way today, what I am not commending to you is that if you just do these things, it can kind of bypass Jesus' experience, his obedience. We will never 
obey at the same level that Christ did. Was not why I'm telling you this. We are not going back over this text this morning so that you can just have a few to-dos that you check off your list and say, whoo, good, I obeyed just like Jesus did. I'm good, I'm set. Hogwash. We need to know what Jesus did and follow him in obedience knowing the whole time that what is necessary has already been done. So as we look at this, I just want to commend this way of thinking to you that we are not after finding out, okay, just, just tell me what I have to do so I can be good. Tell me what I do so I can be right with God. Jesus did that. That's why we focused the whole morning on that last Sunday. So now today, we can simply take our time, work through the text, and see what Jesus thinks about the scriptures and how he uses those in his temptation. So let's open our Bibles, if you haven't done so already. Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We'll pray, and then I'll explain how we're going to work through the passage this morning. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Would you pray with me as we start? Lord, there are two things specifically as we read this text that we are very, very thankful for. We are thankful for the obedience of Christ, that he did not cave to temptation, he did not shortcut the process, he endured to the end, and he did it perfectly. And we are also thankful that in that process, in his bearing up under temptation, he has left us an example to follow. And so now this morning, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, to the different characteristics of the Bible, and as we see those things demonstrated in our text, I ask that you would increase our love for your word. It is all the things that you have said it is. It is wisdom. It is knowledge. It is salvation. It is hope. It is rescue. And so, Father, please make this real to us now this morning. I pray that this wouldn't just be an opportunity to gain some more data, but that we would really grow in our affections for you and for your word. And so we ask for your help. 
that by the power of your spirit, you would come and minister to our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if we were to identify what we're going to talk about and what we're going to see this morning, put a label on it, I would say that we are studying or talking about the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture. Now, doctrine just means a commonly held set of beliefs by a group of people about a specific thing, concept, idea. So the word doctrine is not exclusively a religious word, but primarily it's used to describe different aspects of theology or areas of belief that Christians have held universally throughout all of time. So when we say we're going to talk about the doctrine of Scripture, what I mean is that we are going to talk about the commonly held things that we affirm historically and biblically about the Word of God. These are held in common with much of Orthodox Christianity. Now when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture, there are historically five things that we attribute to the Bible. We could call them the attributes of the Bible, if that helps. And those things would be the authority the inerrancy, the necessity, the clarity, and the sufficiency of the Bible. Those five words are generally how the Bible is talked about. From the time the canon closed and the 66 books of the Bible were organized and put in, from there till now, Orthodox, true Christianity has held these five beliefs about the Scriptures. So what I want to do now is to define each one of those things what does it mean? We have to know what we mean. So if I come up to you and I say, well, don't you know the scriptures are clear? And you're like, well, okay, what does that mean? We have to know what we talk about. Defining terms is so important. So we're going to define what each of these things mean, and then we're going to look at our text as we go through and see if Jesus agrees. Does he put these things into practice? Does he affirm the things that we are affirming? It's great to have doctrines. It's great to agree on what we think about the Bible, but if Jesus doesn't agree, then throw it out. So what I want to do today is identify these things, show you where I see them in the text, and hopefully encourage us to follow in this example that Christ left us. So let's begin with authority. What do we mean when we talk about the authority of the Bible? Well, we mean that it is the very word of God and that there is no higher authority that we can appeal to in matters of life and truthfulness and doctrine and conduct and ethics and living, basically everything, okay? We'll get to that in the sufficiency part. But the authority of the Bible comes from the fact that it is the word of God. So this is why when we study systematic theology, which takes all the different parts of the Christian life and systematizes them, we start with the Scriptures because the Scriptures tell us who God is. It's His self-revelation to us. And when we read the Bible, we discover that God is the author of all things. He is the creator. He is authoritative. So if we say that the Bible is the Word of God and God is the author of all things, then we can say, well, yes, then the Bible is authoritative. Let me give you a couple texts to back this up, 2 Timothy 3. Joey just covered this last Sunday in the exhortation. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It's his word that is spoken out 
and recorded by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul gets even more explicit in 1 Thessalonians. You can write this down, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. That's what Paul says. And we also thank God constantly for this. For what? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It does not get any more clear than that. That what they heard, when Paul says he continually thanks God, because when he brings the word to these people, they receive it not as Paul word, not as a Timothy word, not as an Epaphroditus word, but they receive it for what it is, the word of God. You see, the authority that the Bible carries with it does not come as a result of our ability to handle it. So sometimes, you've probably experienced this, if someone is talking about a certain topic, uh, an area of scientific study or cultural things, whatever, if that person speaks real authoritatively, if they're real confident in what they say, sometimes we tend to believe what they're saying. Not because of the content of the message, but because they're very persuasive, very convincing, very authoritative when they deliver the message. That is not the case with the Word of God. The most timid, soft-spoken disciple of Christ can speak with the authority of God when they speak the Word of God because it is His Word. Does that make sense? So the authority of the Scripture does not come from me. It does not come from you. It comes because it is the Word of God. And he has recorded it for us in this book. So where do we see the authority of Scripture in Matthew 4, 1 to 11? Every time Jesus says, it is written, he is appealing to the authority of the Scriptures. He doesn't argue with Satan. He does not try to use rhetoric and logic. He, appeal, he bypasses all of that and he goes straight to the highest source of authority, which is the word of God. In no time for that. He goes right to the source and it is written denotes Jesus' belief in the authority of the scriptures. Now Jesus could have said, well let me tell you Satan, this is why we shouldn't do this and this is why what you're saying doesn't really add up and whatever. Jesus could have done that, but he doesn't. He goes back to the scriptures and he uses them as his authority, as his foundation. Do you know why? To leave us an example. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but we, we aren't divine. We don't carry with us authority apart from somebody else giving it to us. And so we can't do what Jesus does here. Therefore, he quotes the scriptures and leaves us an example for the authority of the Bible. Next, let's talk about inerrancy. What does it mean that the Bible is inerrant? Well, it means that there's no error in it. It does not contain anything wrong. There's nothing contradictory in the scriptures. There's nothing written in the Bible that would lead you into sin or cause you to stumble. We can think about inerrancy in terms of trustworthiness. The Bible can be trusted because there is no error in it. No wrong instruction. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Remember that from John 17? So he is affirming there that the word of God is true. There's no error in it. To say that something is true is to say it's not a lie. 
Okay, pretty basic, right? So to say that the Bible is without error is to say that it is true. That there's nothing false in the scriptures. So the way that we see this in the text, looking back to Matthew chapter 4, I think we do see Jesus affirm the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Bible in the fact that he corrects Satan's misuse of the scriptures. Okay, if we look back here, Satan picks up on Jesus quoting the scriptures, and so in the second temptation, he goes, okay, I'm going to try this. Uh, it is written, he tries to do the same thing, but as Satan quotes Psalm 91, he takes it out of context. He doesn't use it correctly. We could say he uses it erroneously. But Jesus knows there's no error in the Bible. Therefore, if somebody is quoting the scriptures in a way that contradicts the scriptures, it's error. So Jesus demonstrates, I think, his belief in the inerrancy of the Bible by refuting Satan with the truth of God's word. If the Bible had error, if it were possible for it to contain error or lies, Jesus would not have quoted it. But it is without error. It is unable to fail. Therefore, Jesus refutes Satan's temptations with the word, which is exactly what you and I need to do as well. Trust that the Bible is true and use it in such a way. Now let's consider the clarity of the Bible. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is clear? Well, we know what clear means, like a clear liquids or water is clear or a window is clear we, so we can see through it. I think we understand the concept of clarity there. Well, the clarity of the scriptures, if we want to have a definition, means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow its instruction. Let me say that again. The Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by those seeking God's help and being willing to follow its instructions. So let me just say a couple words about that definition. When we say this, that the Bible is able to be understood, that does not mean that everybody is going to understand the Bible at the same time or in the same way. That should be pretty evident from just even a little bit of experience handling the Word of God. You go to a Bible study, you attend a church, you visit another church while you're on vacation, somebody else has a different idea about what this text says. They draw something different out of it. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture tells us that not everybody will agree about everything, but it tells us that the Bible is written in such a way that the primary meaning of the text is able to be understood. And praise God for this, that he did not make the Scriptures convoluted and muddy and unclear and kind of, kind of vague. There is clear instruction in the Bible. So it's able to be written, it's able to be understood, rather, in a way that is clear to us when we seek God's help. I think this emphasizes the fact that God, in his grace, has not only given us his word, but he's given it to us in a way that we can understand it. And this is why, so speaking to the missions brochures, we support a missionary who translates the Bible. And this is such important work. Because if you do not have access to the scripture in your language, 
then clarity is out the window. There, there's nothing to be clear. <laughs> we need to support and encourage and pray for Bible translation so that the Word of God can get into the hands of people who do not have it and experience the clear intent and teaching of the Bible. My close parenthesis there. So notice from our definition too that the Bible is clear enough to be understood when, so there's a couple of qualifiers there, when we seek God's help and are willing to be taught by it. You know, a lot of people who interact with the Bible interact with it as skeptics. They don't believe what the Bible says to be true. So what they do is they approach the Word of God, they open it, and they go back to manuscript evidence, and they do textual criticism, and they try to find all of these ways that the Bible is untrue, tear it apart and find things. They are not approaching the Scriptures from an attitude of saying, we understand this to be the Word of God, we want to humbly submit ourselves to it, teach me, help me understand. So people interact with it like any other book, and it's confusing to them. I don't understand what's going on in there. Well, do you want to? I mean, it's one thing to read it and go, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's another thing to read the Bible and say, God, help me. God, help me understand. So if we are asking for God's help and we are willing to obey it, what's the common denominator in there? What has God given us to help us understand his word? The Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about being able to understand it, asking for God's help, God answers that prayer by giving us his Spirit. And there are so many texts in the Bible that talk about the Spirit illuminating our eyes, opening our eyes to see what is in the Word of God. I tell people as many opportunities as I get, Psalm 119, 19, open my eyes that I would see wondrous things from your law. Unless we ask God to make the scriptures plain to us, they will remain unclear. Now, could you go and could you learn things about historical data from the Bible? Sure. Could you learn morality? You know, do unto others the golden rule. Yep, you could learn that kind of stuff. But when it comes to matters of eternal significance, when it comes to matters of faith and practice, we must have the help of the Spirit of God in understanding the Word, and we must be willing to do what the Word tells us to do. And when we approach the Bible humbly like that, it will be clear to us. It's the doctrine of the clarity of Scriptures. Now, we've already affirmed that the Bible is without error, so now when we say that the Bible is clear, that means... That when we come to a text that's problematic, something we don't understand, we should attribute that misunderstanding not to a problem in the Bible, but to our understanding of it. So clarity helps us to understand that if the Bible is able to be understood, when we come to something we disagree with or don't like or don't understand, the problem does not lie in the text. It's it's authoritative, it's without error, it's clear when we seek to understand it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, where do we see the clarity of scriptures in Matthew chapter 4? I think every time Jesus answers Satan with scripture, he is demonstrating the clarity of it. So, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, and he says, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Is there anything unclear about that statement? 
Is there any room in there for Satan to go, well, but is that really what it means? Yes, that is really what it means. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is clear, and Jesus affirms this. Or he again quotes from Deuteronomy 6 just a little bit later and says that it is the Lord alone who deserves worship and fear. There is no lack of clarity in what he says or in what he is applying. Jesus believes in the clarity of the scriptures. Therefore, he simply quotes it. He doesn't launch into a 30-minute dialogue about what it means. It is clear. And I think as a, just a small point of application here, sometimes we would do better to rely more on the clarity of scripture and less on our ability to sort of help God. You know what I'm saying? It is okay sometimes as we share with one another, as we witness to unbelievers, as we help each other through matters of our lives, it is okay to just let the scripture speak for itself. It's clear enough. And sometimes when we try to help God communicate, well, here's what I think it really means, we can get into trouble. And it's not that there's never a need for explanation. Good grief, that's what I'm doing up here right now. But oftentimes, we can try to sort of interject ourselves into the text and try to add our wisdom, our insight, our whatever, and so often, I think it would be better if we just let the word stand for what it is. Just a random thought. So, the Bible is authoritative. It is inerrant. It's without error. It is clear, able to be understood, we see all those things next. What do we mean when we talk about the necessity of the scriptures? The necessity of scriptures. Well, the basic definition would be we need them, right? If something is necessary, it is needed. You cannot go without it. It is mission critical to have that thing. That's what necessary means. But we should ask the question, what are the scriptures necessary for? What do we need them for? Okay, great, they're necessary, but for what? Well, the scriptures are necessary because they inform us about the most important realities in the universe. Right, we can look around. This is the natural revelation versus special revelation. So we can look around at the world, according to Romans 1, and we can say, wow, this is pretty great. Somebody must have created this. That's cool. But we cannot look at the world around us and say, I know exactly who did this. I know why he did it. I know he wants to have a relationship with me. We cannot get that apart from the revelation of God's word. Therefore, the scriptures are necessary for matters of salvation and living. So here's a few things it's necessary for. Not exhaustive. These are categories. The Bible's necessary because it tells us about God. It tells us about his attributes it tells us what he loves. It tells us what he hates. It tells us what he has done in redemptive history to redeem a people. It tells us of his plans and his purpose and his will and his redemption and his judgment. It tells us all about the person of God. The scriptures are necessary because it tells us who we are as mankind. Created in the image of God, fallen into sin, slaves to sin, hopeless on our own, in need of redemption and salvation and forgiveness and restoration. The Bible tells us that. Nature doesn't tell us that. The scriptures are necessary because they tell us 
of the Messiah. They tell us of Jesus, the one who came to bridge the gap between sinful fallen man and a holy and righteous God. The Messiah who takes on our sin, bears it to the cross, pays the price, dies, is raised again. All of the things concerning redemption. It tells us the hope of the gospel. So can you see why we say that the scriptures are necessary? They are necessary for us to understand who God is, who we are, what Christ has done, and what our response to that should be. God, man, Christ response. It's a really basic fourfold articulation of the gospel. And without this revelation, without the scriptures, we would all be lost and hopeless. But praise God that he has given us his word. I think Jesus points to the necessity of scripture in verse 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but... Okay, then how will he live? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice the connection between life and the word of God. You do not live by physical food alone, but you do live in a much more significant way by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is necessary for our life to know the scriptures. Lastly, let's consider the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture. When we use the word sufficient, we usually mean enough. I think that's a really good way to understand that. It is the enoughness of scripture. In a couple of chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, sufficient for the day are the troubles thereof. What does he mean? There's enough. The, the trouble is enough. Don't borrow from the future. Just handle what you have today. It's enough. So sufficiency is enoughness. If we want kind of a good systematic theology definition of this, it would be this. Scripture contained all the words of God that he intended for his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him, and for obeying him. So I'll just point out three quick things in that definition. Three aspects of the sufficiency of scripture. Past tense, present tense, and future tense, if you want to think about it that way. First, at each stage of redemptive history, God gave his people exactly what they needed to know his will. Sometimes maybe we think about the saints in the Old Testament or before the canon of scripture was put together and we go, man, that, how, they didn't even know what God wanted from them. They didn't have the Bible, they didn't have whatever. They had enough. The sufficiency of the Bible tells us that at every point in redemptive history, God gave his people exactly what they needed to be obedient to him. And in fact, it would have been confusing in some ways for Moses to have the writings of Paul. Not that they don't harmonize, but you understand what I'm saying. God gives his people in their context what they need to know him, obey him, and love him. So when Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, God gives him everything they need. And as we move on in redemptive history, we see God time after time always giving his people what they need to know him. This is what it meant for the Bible to have been sufficient in the past. 
Well, now in our day, present time, right where you and I are, sufficiency means that we do not have to go outside of the Bible to know God's will. Let's say that one more time. The sufficiency of the Bible means that we do not have to go outside of the Bible to know what God requires of us, to know how to live a life that is pleasing Him, and to know how to deal with any circumstance that arrives in your life. The Bible is enough. I think the Westminster Confession summarizes this really well. All things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith in life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, that is, plain and explicit, or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture. Do you you understand what that's saying? Everything we need for life is either crystal clear on the page or can be worked out by just thinking a little bit about it. So sometimes we talk about sufficiency and people will say, well, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know. It doesn't tell you how to change a tire on your car. It doesn't include lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. It doesn't include some of those kinds of things. So how can we say that the Bible is sufficient for everything when I continually run into situations that the Bible doesn't address? Fair question. But we have to remember this is why this definition is so good. That everything that we need to know is either expressly set down in the Scripture or... If you think about it, if you apply the principles of the Bible, your situation will be covered. Now that's a good definition of the sufficiency of Scripture, but it's worthless if Jesus doesn't agree. So, do we see him demonstrate sufficiency of Scripture in Matthew 4? Boy, it'd be really bad if I said no at this point. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we see him demonstrate this. And I think that we see him demonstrate this In the whole section. The whole section is a testimony, verses 1 to 11, of the sufficiency of Scripture as Jesus does not even one time deviate from the Scriptures. Not once. Every opportunity he has to confront, to correct, to respond, he goes straight to the Word. Not even once does he go outside of the Bible to do this. Now he could have quoted a rabbi He could have talked about some training that he had received as he was growing up as a young Jewish boy. He could have just re-articulated something, and because he was the Son of God, that would have been right and good. He could have just spoken with authority to Satan, but he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't do that, the reason he goes back to the Scripture is so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can read this and go, man, Jesus believes in the sufficiency of the Bible. He went to the Word. I should go to the Word. You see how this is all lending itself to the example that Jesus is setting us here? So why does he do this? Why does he just quote the Bible in addition to what I just said? On one hand, he believes everything that we talked about this morning. Jesus believes in the authority of the Word. It's his Word. (laughs) He believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, that there is no error, there is no mistruth, there is no lie in the scriptures. He believes that they are necessary for us, that they are clear and that they are sufficient. There's another reason 
and it has to do with you and I. And here is where we see the example setting that Jesus puts forward here as such an encouragement. See, if, if Jesus had just used his divine nature, if he had just responded in his own words to Satan and kind of dealt with it that way, that doesn't help us out very much, right? I mean, we could look at it and we'd be like, well, that's, that's great, I'm glad he did that. But by Jesus going to the same, did you know he quotes the same words that we have? That's remarkable. And he does that to give us hope and encouragement because we are regularly finding ourselves in situations where we need to fight temptation. And I don't just mean sexual temptation. That's often those things can get uh, you know, equated and that's definitely a part of this. But look at all the gamut of what Jesus is tempted at. Pride, self-satisfaction, power, worship, all of those things we deal with in some way or another. And Jesus wants us to believe what the Bible says, to believe what the Bible is, authoritative, inerrant, necessary, clear, sufficient. And he wants us to live our lives in those way. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. The last place we'll turn. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And I want you to turn there so that you can read what I'm reading and see what I'm seeing, because I think this is a tremendous encouragement for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You there? Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is why Jesus quotes scripture in Matthew chapter 4. This is why he endures temptation in Matthew chapter 4. This is why he came to earth. To set us an example that we would follow in his steps. And if we were to ask the question, okay, how do I bear up under trial? How do I bear up under temptation? The answer to that is that when we are tempted, we ought to know and apply the doctrine of Scripture. Everything that we just talked about this morning will fit every situation of your life. It's true. It will. It really will. The Bible contains everything you need to know to live a life that is pleasing to your Heavenly Father. This is why we took the time this morning to explain all these things. I want you to know this. But it's really inconsequential what I want. God wants you to know this. God wants you to understand his word, to be able to handle it, to be able to wield it, to be able to use it in your life in the ways that he has designed it to be used. So as we close this morning, I want to just apply one specific area of the doctrine of scripture. You can probably guess what it is. I'm going to talk about a little bit the sufficiency of scripture. Now, I think out of all five of the things we talked about today, understanding the sufficiency of the Scripture is the most important. It is the most critical for us. And I think this because the culture around us, but just before I go on, I just want to say it's really easy to blame everything on the culture. Sometimes that just becomes like the, well, if anything's wrong, it's the world's fault and it's whatever. There's, there's our own sin, there's our accountability, everything in there, but... In this case, bear with me. 
the world around us has become infatuated with the self. No matter where you turn, whether it's advertising, media outlets, shopping, the grocery store for crying out loud, everything we see is prompting you to turn inward and to just satisfy yourself. Your individuality is more important to the world than anything else. And it's a fallacy. And the reason this plays into sufficiency is this. Through product promotion, self-help books, the rise of mental health diagnosis, we are constantly being instructed that the world has the answer for all those things. Oh, you have this problem? Well, you need to see that doctor. Oh, you have that problem? Well, I tell you what, read this book. Oh, you have fill in the blank? There's a medication for that. As Christians, as people who believe that this book contains everything we need, should we adopt the same way of thinking? Should we buy into the concept that if you just go to the right person, if you read the right material, if you take the right medication, you and your little individual self can be happy? Is that line up with the scriptures? I say no. I say no. Because the Bible contains everything that we need. And this is where the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture becomes really applicable and perhaps for some of us really uncomfortable. You see, we do not have the luxury of cherry-picking different areas of our life and saying, yep, the Bible is sufficient here. But then we get outside of that and we've forgotten all about the Bible. So it's one thing, you come to a, let's say you come to Bible study, okay? And you're sitting around the table and you're talking and boy, it's easy right in that context to say, oh, isn't the Bible great? It's, it's sufficient, it's got all the answers we need for this Bible study, this is wonderful. And then you get out and it's Thursday afternoon, you have no idea what to do with the situation in front of you and the first thing that the world wants you to do is go to an expert. Do a little self-diagnosis this afternoon. Think about the top two, three, four situations that you dealt with this week. Family, work, health, whatever. And ask yourself, did you go to the scriptures before anything else in trying to figure that problem out? And you say, well, come on, you don't know what I do for a living. or you know, The Bible doesn't apply. Yes, it does. And you're right, I don't know every specific situation in here. I don't know everything you guys are going through. But I tell you what, God does. And he has recorded his word for us so that we can reject all the failing and fleeting systems of the world around us that are just band-aids on the wound anyways. And he has given us his perfect, authoritative, clear, inerrant, sufficient word so that you and I can turn away from relying on self, away from relying on the government, and away from relying on every other system out there and rely on God. And for all the people right now who are thinking of a yabbit yeah, situation, you guys know what those are, I say something and you say, yeah, but 
test this first. Of course, there are situations in which we need to go to the doctor or we need to do whatever. I'm on insulin 24 hours a day. I'm not saying, nope, Bible's sufficient. I don't need insulin. That's foolish. But for every area of our life, the Bible has what we need. It is enough. I just want us to know that so badly. Because there's nothing else that will sustain us. There's nothing else that's going to encourage us as we go through life. If we just try to cherry pick things out of this book and be like, I don't know what it says, I don't know what to do, I'll go over here. That doesn't honor the Lord. So if this is your church, if, if grace is where you go to church, I just encourage you. We need to know and apply the doctrine of the scriptures. Everything we saw Jesus do in this text, he wants us to do as we come across the different areas of our life. So I'm calling us to this. Let's believe in the doctrine of the scripture. Let's believe that the Bible is all that we need and let's live it out and encourage one another with it and glorify God in the way that we live together. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us with this. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is a pretty bold statement for me to stand up here and say that whatever is going on in our lives, the Bible deals with. Because there are so many different situations represented here. I understand that. But, Lord, your word is so clear that you have given us, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, everything we need for life and godliness. And so as we go about our days, Lord, we do not want to be the people that relegate spiritual things to the church and turn somewhere else for the rest of our life. That is folly and it is suicide. So I pray that you would help us to see that the scriptures do indeed inform all of life and living. That there is no area, there is no situation we will experience that is outside of your purview and your control and your instruction. So God, give us the humility to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from the systems of the world, and to rely upon you and your word. And by your grace and through your spirit, would you help us? We don't want to read the Bible like skeptics, always questioning, always wondering. We want to read the Bible trusting that it's true. And so please confirm this in our hearts, God. Help us to live like people of the book. And in everything that we do, would we uphold the testimony of your word as we live our lives. So God, that's our prayer this morning. That's our request. And we ask that you would hear our prayers and answer according to your will. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.